0: Have you ever had one of those days when it seems like just one thing after another is going wrong and you just can't get your, your life or at least your day back under control? You know, sometimes it can be the kind of thing that you'll be able to look back on and laugh about. You know, it'll be a, a funny story to tell your friends or share in a, at a family reunion one of those one of those real life examples of murphy's law, right? you know, anything that can go wrong will. so maybe it's, you know, one one evening you're trying to not burn dinner and then one of your kids spills their glass of milk and you're looking around for a dish towel that apparently is non-existent and then one of your other kids comes in to tell you there's a giant spider above their bed. but you know, sometimes all the stresses uh, the, the, the storms of life can really threaten to overwhelm us, and it's, it's not a laughing matter. You know, sometimes maybe you're already going through a really difficult life transition, and then a precious friendship falls apart. Or maybe on top of unemployment or, or financial instability, all of a sudden, a devastating health problem is thrown into the mix. I know many of you here have experienced what that's like. Some of you even are living through the storm or a storm right now. You know, and I think all of us, whether, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, all of us have a desire, an instinctive longing for, for God to show up in those moments, those kind of situations for for a divine, powerful, all uh, good and loving being to arrive, to turn things around, to save us. You know, we all know that this world can often seem chaotic, out of control, and, and we know that storms are inevitable sooner or later. So if God was going to show up for you, what would you ask him to do? What would, it, what would it take? What would it require for him to rescue you? Well, this morning we're going to be looking uh, at, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Uh, it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And just by a little bit of a, a way of preview, um, both Pastor Tanner and myself, kind of in the coming weeks and months we're kind of be, we'll be trading off occasionally on a series uh, called Portraits of Jesus, Portraits of Christ. And, uh, and so you can look forward to, hopefully in the future, some other little snapshots from the ministry, from the life of Christ, and just seeking to answer the question, who is, who is this person? Um, but today we're in Matthew chapter 14, and in the context of Matthew's gospel— I won't be able to, you know, give you an overview of the, the last uh, 13 plus chapters, but in, in, in the immediate context, Jesus has just fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, the feeding of the 5,000. Crowds of people had come out to Jesus in the wilderness, and instead of, you know, what, what perhaps the, the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities might have feared, Jesus was not handing out swords, he was not training them for battle. He provided a banquet. He gave them bread. And, and the account in, in John's gospel of this same miracle makes it clear that, you know, at this point, the crowd had really wanted to make Jesus king by force. But you see, the thing is, Jesus had come to this earth to spark a revolution, but it wasn't the revolution that these crowds had in mind. Jesus was the Messiah, but he was going to Jerusalem not to sit on David's throne, but to wear a crown of thorns. And he would ride into town not to deliver his people from Roman occupation, but to deliver them from their sins. And so at this point, the crowd wanting to take him, make him king by force, he knew he had to get out of there, exit the scene. He needed to get his disciples out of there because they were much more prone to to fall into that, that desire as well. And so we pick up the narrative, we'll begin reading in chapter 14, verse 22 through 33. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, For the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Well, in this story, the unique identity of Jesus Christ is really on full display. His incredible power and authority over the wind and the waves bring the disciples, as we see there at the end of the passage, they bring the disciples to the conclusion that he is the Son of God. And even though when they're left to themselves, the disciples only struggle through the storm, in his own perfect timing, Jesus arrives to comfort and rescue them. So if I wanted to summarize the story in one sentence, uh, I, would, I, would, I would say it like this. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rescues from the storm, so worship him. And we'll, we'll kind of walk through this step by step um, as the outline of the sermon. But again, Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rescues from the storm, so worship him. So let's just begin with that that first part Jesus is the sovereign Lord. I think if there's one thing Matthew wants us to learn from this story, it's that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And particularly as we see here, He is sovereign over the wind and waves. He's not just a, a great teacher, He's not merely a wise religious leader. He is the divine Son of God with power over every gust of wind and every wave. And he's sovereign over every circumstance and detail of our lives. Now, I think one thing that's crucial for us to, to see in this story is that, uh, as, as one commentator uh, phrases it, Jesus, in this, in this account of walking on the water, Jesus is both showing he is God and he is saying he is God. Both showing he is God and saying he is God. Uh, look again in verse uh, 20, beginning in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus shows he is God as he walks on water. You know, throughout The Old Testament throughout Hebrew Scripture, no one has power over wind and sea except Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. It was was Yahweh who, who parted the Red Sea for Israel as they left Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. It was Yahweh, the Lord, who calmed the storm after the prophet Jonah was thrown overboard off the ship. The Lord God... The God of Israel created the sea, created the land and everything in them. And so as, as we heard read earlier, he's even described in Psalm 77 as walking on the sea. Psalm seventy seven nineteen your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. In, in a similar passage, Job, in Job uh, 9, 8, Job says of God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? So it's God alone who has the power to walk across the sea. And here Jesus is showing that he has that power. He is God. And by walking on the waves, Jesus isn't only demonstrating his authority over the natural elements. Because throughout Scripture, the sea often symbolizes uh, the forces of evil, the chaos of this world. It's, it's, it's a dark place. It's powerful. It's deadly and, and uncontrollable. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, right, we, in the very beginning we read, there was darkness over the face of the deep waters until God spoke light and order and, and beauty into existence, and he, he reigned in and brought control to the chaos. And then even at the very end of our Bible, in Revelation 21, when John describes the new heavens and the new earth, we're told that the sea is no more. And so when Jesus walks on water and and brings calm to the chaos of the storm, it's also a picture of his power and authority over evil and chaos, his power to put an end to their fearsome grip on this broken world. So Jesus shows he is God through his actions, through this miracle. He also says he is God. So when Jesus calls to his disciples, he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You know, this really brings to mind uh, some of the language of Isaiah chapter 43, where God says to Israel, Fear not. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I am the Lord your God. Fear not, for I am with you. But even more striking are the particular words that Matthew records when Jesus says, It is I. You know, the, the Greek words there, uh, ego, ami, uh, they'd literally be translated simply, I am. And so in, the, in the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament that had been translated into Greek, it's known as the Septuagint, in that Greek translation, those exact same words, ego, ami, I am, are used in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3.14, the account when Moses is asking the Lord, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so as Jesus comes walking on the water, and he calls out to his disciples, essentially he's saying, don't fear, I am is here. He shows them that he is God and he says he is God. But even as we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the sovereign I am, we also have to recognize that this storm is, is designed, it's by design to glorify the Son. Uh, consider again uh, what what we read in verse twenty four of this account. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. This whole situation was no accident, but designed with a purpose, namely to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus ordered his disciples to go across the lake without him. And before long, they found themselves in the midst of a storm. You know, the the boat literally, this word, you know, beaten by the waves, it, it could often be translated as tormented or tortured by the waves. And all this was not through their own foolishness or disobedience. It was the result of obeying an express command of their master. And then it seems like Jesus is failing to show up, taking his time up there on the mountain, even as they are in danger of perishing. So what does this mean for us as as Christians, as believers, as disciples? If this was the experience of these original twelve disciples who, who lived and walked with Jesus, will it not also be true for us? Might Jesus lead us into a storm that we cannot understand for our ultimate good and so that his glory might be revealed? Or do we embrace a prosperity gospel that promises wealth and comfort and success for everyone who just has enough faith? Do we expect, do we expect that if we're walking in obedience to Christ and involved in his kingdom work, that we will avoid storms in this life? Brothers and sisters, this story and, and really the entire Bible instructs us otherwise. Make no mistake, Jesus knew this storm was coming, and he sent his disciples right into it. But we may be, we may be tempted to ask, why? Why would he do this? Well, it's important that we consider not only why he did this, but, but why he, the reason that that he did not do this, both the positive and the negative. He didn't do this to, to somehow punish or rebuke his disciples. It's crucial as believers that we not interpret trials as a sign of God's displeasure or disfavor. So, Christian, the storms that enter your life and my life are not a result of God punishing sin or pouring out wrath. If you are in Christ, all your punishment has been endured by him on the cross. I just want to say that again. As a Christian, the storms that enter your life are not a result of God punishing sin or pouring out wrath. Think of of Job's friends in the book of Job. They assumed all of Job's trials and suffering were a direct result of his sin, but in the end, God rebuked them because behind the curtain, there was this display of God's glory being played out in the heavenly arena, and neither Job nor his friends had the faintest idea of all that was going on. And so when you walk through the trial, know that, that Jesus may be leading you through the dark valley in order to display himself to you and to others in an even more breathtaking way. The storm was the means Jesus used to reveal himself to his disciples. And really, we see this kind of thing throughout uh, the Gospels. So in, in the book of John, in John's Gospel, in, in John 9, there's a, there's a man, Jesus' disciples ask uh, why this man born blind uh, whether this was the result of his sin or the sin of his parents. And so Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus is not denying that blindness and sickness and death are are a consequence of living in a fallen world that suffers under the curse of sin. Yes, blindness and disease is a result of sin, for, for death and destruction enter this world because of sin. And all of us are are guilty under that curse. All of us have have contributed our own sins uh, into that reality. But there will be no more blindness in heaven because sin and suffering and death will be swallowed up. But what Jesus is saying is that, that this man was not born blind because of specific sins of his own. God is sovereign even over the effects of the curse. And in this particular case of blindness, it was designed to display the works of God as Jesus demonstrated his power to open the eyes of the blind. God meant it for good, to use the, the language from Joseph in Genesis 50. And then even a couple chapters later in John's gospel, John 11, the story of Lazarus, when Jesus, you'll remember, hears his friend Lazarus is ill, and he says, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then he stays away two days longer, and Lazarus dies. And then he says to his disciples, For your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Even the death of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, was designed to glorify the Son so that his disciples might believe in him. And and John writes that, that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, but this decision to delay in this way doesn't seem loving because Lazarus really died. And as far as, as he knew, as far as his sisters knew, Jesus had failed to show up. And Mary and Martha had to watch their brother die. Now, you and I, of course, we have the advantage of 20-20 of hindsight. We, we have the whole Gospel of John. We know Jesus is going to come and raise Lazarus from the dead. It doesn't seem like as big of a deal from our vantage point. But we can't dismiss his death as as insignificant. No, death is hard, it's real, it's terrible. And yet Jesus does what he does so that his glory will be revealed and his disciples will believe. And the question for us is, do we, can we, trust that a display of God's glory, causing us to have faith in him, leading us to, to know him, love him, cherish him more, is actually worth going through a storm, going through a painful experience? Can we still trust that he loves us even when when the loss seems unbearable? Can we trust that he works all things together for his glory and our ultimate good, that he's committed to, to bestowing eternal joy and goodness and beauty on us by revealing himself to us, giving himself to us, uniting us to Christ, his son. Now before Lazarus was, was raised from the dead, it was hard for that family to see how God was going to be glorified in this situation. And really in much the same way, there are times when we are unable to see how God will be glorified through the storms of illness or disappointment, discouragement, depression, even death itself. And we we should also be cautious not to, not to rush, not to try and connect the dots in a, in a simplistic or trite manner. Uh, the poet William Cooper, uh, in, in his b- beautiful poem, he wrote these words, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plans his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And in the conclusion of his poem, he says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is the interpreter, and, and one day he will make all things plain. But there may be a season when all we can do is trust him and keep following, even when we can't see it. Knowing that when our resurrection comes, when all things are made new, when we no longer see in a mirror dimly but face to face, we will be able to understand what God was doing. And I think even more importantly, we will be able to better understand who God is. I know many of you have experienced significant trials, and and you know what it means to persevere in faith while going through those trials, sometimes the only thing that can carry us through the storm is a firm confidence that God is in control. You know, if, if God could take the most terrible event in history, the worst tragedy, the crucifixion of the Son of God by the hands of sinful men and use it to accomplish the greatest good imaginable, the greatest blessing, surely he can also use our trials for good, whether or not We fully understand everything right now. But we know nothing can separate us from Christ's love, from the love of our good and sovereign Lord. So he is, Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And and second, second point is that he's the one who rescues from the storm. So we've seen Jesus intentionally sent his disciples into the storm. That's not the end of the story because he doesn't abandon them. He comes to their rescue, and nothing can hinder him. No obstacle can keep him. So again, we read in verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So we notice here that, that Jesus, he arrives in his own good time. When it says the fourth watch of the night, that means he didn't come till some sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., and they had set out in the evening, and, and Jesus had gone up onto the mountain, so clearly his intention was not to come to their rescue the very moment the storm began. They probably were out there approximately eight hours or more before he came. So, what do we take from this? Well, first of all, we should never doubt that Jesus will rescue us from every every terror, trial, or storm. He is our merciful Savior. He's promised that we will never perish, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. But sometimes that final deliverance may not come as quickly as we'd like. It may not come in this life. For some, the trial will last our entire lives. Like Paul with his thorn in the flesh, God might allow a long-term trial to demonstrate to us and to others that his grace is sufficient. He is faithful. The trial might, might continue and remain to prove our faith is gold as we continue to trust even when, when the answer to our prayers for, for deliverance is, is wait. But sometimes our Lord will show up in a in a dramatic and spectacular way walking on the water displaying his awesome power but you know in either case all our hope must be in him as we wait for him to calm the storm and put all things right but second as Jesus disciples while we ultimately depend on him trust in him to accomplish the rescue it doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing because, because Jesus is with us and he lives in us. He is the compassionate and merciful savior and we as his disciples are to imitate him in reaching out to others with that same compassion and help and hope. And so sometimes that means stepping outside our comfort zone, taking bold action in faith that God will help us so we see a picture of this in this story in verse 28 with Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. You know, Peter often gets criticized or sort of given a hard time for his lack of faith, right? Oh, you have little faith. But at least... At least there was a little faith there, right? We should, we should give him credit for being the one out of all the disciples to leave the boat because he wanted to be where Jesus was. You know, in so many different ways, Jesus also calls us to step out in faith, to, to join him in his work. And he may call us to do something, something hard, something uncomfortable, and it might be Often it is when we're in the middle of a storm. You know, what's what's with that? Maybe it's really not a convenient time right now. But you know, the time to step out in faith is now. The time to obey is now. The time to to follow Jesus' call to step out of the boat is now. It's the same kind of thing that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. When he writes, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then later in in chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Paul also writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. When God calls us to to step out in love, even when we feel overwhelmed, we feel inadequate, it proves his power and it shows that that we have something the world doesn't understand. And that might look like sacrificially helping a brother or sister in need, bringing them a meal Helping them to move, even even someone maybe you don't know that well. It might mean stepping out of your comfort zone to, to talk about your faith, your relationship with Jesus, with, with your coworker, with a fellow student, even though you're afraid. It might look like as, as Tanner mentioned earlier in his prayer, being called to try to take the gospel to, to unreached places, unreached peoples. And beginning that path of, of praying and, and getting counsel and preparing for that kind of uh, a, a huge step of, of faith. But Jesus calls us out of the false sense of safety that we have in the boat. He calls us to step out in faith so that we can be about his work, his mission, following in his steps Now, some of you might look at this story and think, well, you know, is Peter really such a great example of faith? Doesn't he end up sinking in the waves? Doesn't he end up crying out to Jesus to save him? Yes, that's right. And you know, we are just like Peter. One commentator writes, uh, and I just I love this quote, so I'm gonna read you the whole thing. One commentator says, Peter is a symbol of believers. They, like he, are full of faith and unfaith, of feats and failures. Does this story teach disciples that they can believe and do great things? Or does it teach disciples that they cannot sustain faith by themselves, and that sooner or later they, too, disbelieve and sink, thus needing, no less than outsiders, the miraculous Savior? The answer seems to be that the story teaches both. Yeah, Jesus calls us to have faith, to overcome our fears and step out into the water, and we need not be afraid that the storm will will overwhelm us. When we fix our eyes on him and walk by faith, faith, Jesus can empower us to do great things. And when we doubt, when we struggle, he's there to extend his hand and pull us up. David Platt comments on the same Account here in Matthew. He says, What matters most is not the measure of your faith. Instead, what matters most is always the object of your faith. The point then is clear. Your faith is strong only when the object of your faith is strong. What what David Platt is saying is, It's not how much faith you have, how powerful it is. No, it's the person you've put your faith in. It's Jesus. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He rescues from the storm, and so third and finally, worship him. Worship him. Jesus, the divine Son of God, the Lord over all creation, he is the rescuer, he's the only Savior worthy of all our trust and all of our worship. Look again at verse 32. When they got into the boat, meaning Peter and and Jesus, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is actually highly significant. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that the disciples have used this title, Son of God, for Jesus. The Father called Jesus his beloved Son at Jesus' baptism in in chapter 3. The demons called him the Son of God in chapter 8. But now, after Jesus has, has shown that he's God and said that he is God, the disciples worship him, calling him the Son of God. Now, these disciples are are monotheistic Jews. They are worshipers of the one true God, right? The the law, the, the Pentateuch was very clear on that. For them to worship anyone other than God is idolatry. So it's astounding that they would declare this man to be the Son of God and would worship him. And so that's really why you know, liberal theologians who who would try to explain away this miracle, who would try to suggest Jesus was just walking in some shallow water by the shore, their arguments completely fall flat. Something truly miraculous, truly earth-shattering had to happen to cause these disciples to take this radical step. It had to take a miracle, something that could not be explained away. The disciples had caught a glimpse of Christ's glory, and they recognized the Son of God. The only reasonable response then was worship. So do you recognize Jesus this morning? Do you recognize who he is? Do you put your faith in him, knowing that he is able to do anything? You know, I asked at the very beginning, if God was to show up, what would you ask of him? What would it take for him to rescue you? Well, friend, God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he came to this earth and he gave up everything. He did all that was necessary to accomplish the rescue we need. Only Jesus is able to deliver us from the greatest storm of all. Because in our sin, in our rebellion against a holy God, each and every one of us deserves Wrath and judgment. And no amount of our own efforts to row ourselves to safety will make any difference because we are no match for this storm. But Jesus, he gave himself up to the storm of God's wrath. He took its full fury on himself. He was crushed in our place under the full weight of divine judgment. On the cross, he died the death that we all deserve. He took our place even though he was sinless, and now we can have the eternal life that belongs to him, the life that he always intended for his people, a life of peace and safety forevermore. Because he rose from the dead after three days, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, proving that he'd conquered sin and death, and that his sacrifice was more than enough as payment for our salvation. And so he offers peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God to all, to anyone who would repent of their sin and cry out, like Peter, Lord, save me. Jesus offers shelter from the storm of judgment that we deserve. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel that, that as Christians we treasure and proclaim and live by. If you're here today, you've never embraced this gospel before, I would encourage you to, to, to talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors or elders here, or, or maybe someone who brought you today, just about what it would mean to put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and what it would look like to begin following him. And for those of us, South Canyon Baptist Church, those of us who are believers, let us Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, this Savior who uses even the storms of life for our eternal good, who will rescue us from all our trials and bring us safely into His heavenly kingdom. His blood has washed away our sin, and the Father's wrath is completely satisfied. And so, what else can we say? What else? Can we sing? But Jesus, thank you. Let's pray. Father, we feel both uh, how uh, weak and inadequate we are to to face and to uh, endure through. The difficulties and the trials of this life, and we need your grace, we need your presence, we need your peace. Uh, we also recognize, even, even as we look at this glorious passage, this glorious picture of your Son, uh, how difficult it is for us to, to fully see and to comprehend his glory, all that he is, all that he has done for us. And so we pray uh, even as we prayed at the beginning, uh, that you would uh, just open our eyes and work in us by your Holy Spirit and that you would now just receive our praise and our adoration to, to Jesus, his, his wonderful grace and his mercy, that he is always a present help in our time of need. We thank you for that. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.